Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Warfighter Podcast. Colin, hello. Ah, uh, hello, hello. And and of course, you know, we're recording this live and that's the time that everyone sort of emails saying, can I call now? No, I'm doing something important. Only time, yeah, I know. Mate, <laughs> I am that important too. I just don't talk about it. <laughs> I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> Quite a heavy, heavy episode today, but in an awesome way. But before we kind of go into the interview and what our listeners will be able to kind of educate themselves on, I want to touch on a couple of things, Colin. But I wanted to bring up this 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 <laughs> Flymageddon first because I've spoken to a few people this morning. That is, it's a phenomenon across the UK right now because of this bizarre, ridiculous 24 degree October heat we've had going into winter. Older buildings have just basically had infestations of flies. So I came, I cleaned the house one morning, Saturday. I cleaned it, Colin. We take the mic. And then two hours later, came in thousands of flies around. So I, th- I just wanted to mention this. So that if anyone else had this issue, you're not alone. And ladybirds, by the way, as well, not just flies. Thousands on the windowsills, but to the absolute horror of my children as they came in. <laughs> Have you not, there's some sort of nursery rhyme about that. You get the spider to catch the fly, then you have to get the something else to catch the spider. I don't, that makes me, that's just an allegory. It makes me terrified for the spiders coming through. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that before we went into the deep depth stuff. Also, Colin, I've just finished a call with our sponsors, Babcock, and I think I've got something that might get you quite excited. Go on, hit me with it. So we've been talking about some of the things that they've been doing and what can we get involved in. And I'm all for, like, I was like, like, send me to do a simunition down in the CQB range. And I was like, and they're like, yeah, I could do that, Tom. Or we could send you down to Warminster, go to the defense support group where they do all their vehicle maintenance. And you can get down there, understand kind of what they do through life maintenance for their vehicles and get stuck, get roll your sleeves up. And I know that's something that you do as a hobby. So, you know, are you interested in that? Well, I mean, if there's anything with Land Rovers, the answer is yes. Well, I'm, I'm sure that Land Rovers and above. <laughs> I mean, is, it, is this in some way related to the, I, I did get a chance to DSCI to talk to the people who are doing a trial on converted Land Rovers, you know, converting them to electric. So, you know, if we could spin anything like that in, then... Basically, I think we get free reign of, of go down to the Defence Support Group, work with the Babcock team there to see what they do and, and maybe get to, you know, unscrew a few bolts. I mean, that's as far as my knowledge goes with vehicles. So I'm sure I'll learn a lot, but, you know, thought I'd be cool. You're interested? Yeah, no, it sounds very good. Yeah. You know, I don't know how much Land Rover's changed from my 1978. Maybe you maybe you could teach them a thing or two. Maybe that's what they need. That's why they've sponsored the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing, which was really excited, which is why you can tell I'm excited by it. They've also got some sort of really cool kind of C2 command and control center ISO container down at Warminster where they do big high level strategic kind of operations or simulations. But it's got a vibrating floor plate and also kind of sound effects. And they do analysis into kind of stress levels, which I think we'll be able to get access to. So I'm really excited by that day. We've just got to find a day that works for you because you are obviously a very busy man. Well, I think we'll definitely get it in. I think that's enough of the preamble. I think we should get into this. So Colin, would you like to introduce our guest, the topic, and then I can give you some thoughts before we get into it? Yeah, so I know our listeners will think this is all carefully planned but and we segue seamlessly from one episode <laughs> to another, but if that's just appearances, that's fine. But building on, on our AI discussion, I was lucky enough to bump it to uh, Winston, who's the uh, global CTO for public services at a company called Snowflake. We'll make that joke later. <laughs> but they're heavily involved in data at scale, really, is probably the best way to describe it. And I think what's fascinating is getting some understanding of the difference of, I guess, when, you know, sometimes we're playing in the shallow end of the data. What does mm-hmm. it look like in the depths of large data programs and, and across 
public sector. So really just a, a window into that. Tom, I think the interesting thing from this is you found it educational and I found it educational, probably for different reasons. <laughs> but that's yeah. kind of rare. Pitching it at the right level is always hard. But Winston managed to do it for cross the spectrum. Taking that analogy, I'm the guy with the inflatable rubber ring on, trying to make sure I don't sink in the shallow end, whereas you're the guy doing the free free solo diving, you know, but, but I think well, it's good. Yeah, not quite that much, but yeah, definitely interested in the depths, but... Yeah, no, it was just, it was, I think this is going to be, it is relevant to everyone that listens here because data now is prevalent and relevant throughout defense and it is only going to become more important. And like you say, I think we only ever, because we're scared to go deeper, we only ever talk about the shallow end and everyone's comfortable in the shallow end. I think it's important to understand the opportunities and the challenges associated with the deeper end, which is where we need to go if you really want to leverage data going forward. So should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Winston Chang, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Now, we've got to get a few things straight before we go even into all of this subject. So Snowflake's an interesting name. Just tell us a bit about what Snowflake did. <laughs> yes. Yes, it normally, we normally ask our guests to introduce themselves, give us a bit of background. But Paul has gone for the jugular for this one. So yeah, let's, let's get it cleared up. Well, you know, it's the, it's the next army marketing, right? We had army of one in the US and now, you know, we just progressively keep moving. No, I'm totally joking. <laughs> um, yes, coming from, you know, an army background and, and a lot of the folks in the public sector realm come from defense, you know, some form of national security. Snowflake is has a very different meaning in those subcultures, we'll put it. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, even the first few times, you know, the first welcome e emails like, hey, snowflakes, like that, those are internal emails. Yeah, so you call yourself snowflakes as well. Everyone gets called snowflakes, <laughs> yes. Which again, has a wholly different context. But our founders honestly just love skiing, right? And so when they came up with a name, I don't even think it had to do with the Snowflake data architecture, which is like an old school architecture way back, right? I don't even think it has to do with that. I think it was just purely they love scheme. And so they named it Snowflake. So different contexts, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll have to think about how we brand that in the national defense sector. <laughs> but but in, in a nutshell, what is Snowflake involved in? What do they do? So we are the leading, I would say, obviously I'm biased, but we are the leading cloud platform truly developed cloud native and uh, any enterprise can essentially do all of their data work on Snowflake. So it's that next generation of where you would think databases and data lakes or whatever the current popular term is today would move toward. So we'll get a bit into that because there's loads of terms that still frankly confuse me. So this is why we do this. But, you know, you mentioned you you have an army background. Can you just give us a bit about how you got here? Certainly. Uh, my journey is very unique, I guess. It's one, that's the nice way to put, like, it's very ADD-ish in the sense that I just bounced around from one thing to the next. But yes, came uh, from the army, right? Wonderful pedigree coming out of West Point, but medically discharged and went directly to a hedge fund, basically, or a bank and then a hedge fund from there relatively quickly and worked derivatives, specifically structured finance and CDOs through the crash, right? So it's uh, big events in US history and global history, like 9-11 was in the army, the entire global downturn, which was caused by CDOs. I was doing CDOs. <laughs> and then I was consulting commercially for a while and then moved into 
government consulting at the behest of a lot of my classmates saying, you should be out here doing this consulting for our federal government. From there, I never imagined I would stick around and do that, but the opportunities just continued presenting themselves. And I really appreciated being back in sort of the mission space, knowing that what you do gives back and has that larger, bigger picture, that larger mission and impact, whether that was a civilian mission or an actual national defense mission. And ultimately got into the transformations in government. And the truth is transformations driven by technology in the government. If we think of public sector as a whole, and we think of how governments, especially you know democracies work, those governments always need they need a forcing function to change. And when it comes down to it, that forcing function is typically technology because that's what gets funded. Uh-huh. Right? It's easy to make an argument for new technology or for a change in technology because you have a direct comparison with the commercial market and you can see it out there. And what we don't typically fund from a budget standpoint is the organizational transfer, transformational effort that goes along with that. It typically all comes out of that budget that is specifically meant for technology. So if you want to do a transformation, so the government, if you want to make the government better, eventually you end up in technology. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time doing strategy and then also just getting very technical since I do have that sort of analytic background. So yeah, that's sort of what brought me all the way over to Snowflake. There has been a couple of key technologies I've seen over a decade plus of specifically government transformation work. And when I saw Snowflake come out, it was like the biggest tech IPO in history. And so, of course, the first thing I did, actually before an IPO, I was already kind of running through demos, calling them up. They didn't even have a public sector team at the time. And I texted a handful of my CIO friends who are in the government. And I was like, keep an eye on this. We're going to see this. This is going to be relevant. It's going to be interesting. And then we did an impl- implementation, you know, and it was very national security focused with a civilian agency, but tied to national security. And from there, an opportunity opened up at Snowflake. So I took the shot and jumped over. Yeah, it's all, it's all about timing. You know, I heard about Snowflake from a data scientist. And it's interesting when you hear the technical people raving about stuff. You know, it's not just you saw an advert or something. But traditionally, the technologies and other platforms are available. But technology is being pioneered in things like advertising and marketing and even pharmaceuticals or noble work. But mainly in trying to sell us things, sell us more things, it's great that we can take that, that technology that's developed for maybe the more mundane every day, but actually then apply it to really important tasks. You know, as we've seen that that's where it's it gets exciting and for the public sector defense that's all new. And whereas actually if you talk to them on the commercial side, it's like, yeah, people understand it. It's more proven. It's still exciting for us. So but for many of us, our listeners that probably have no clue of how we got to, I think when I talk to people about this subject, you know, you say the words data analytics and everything's data. As I've learned, not all data is the same. Give us a little bit of a potted history of how the approach for Snowflake is different, but you know, how do we get here? So what were we doing 20 years ago that's different now? And if you could add any examples as you go through that, that would be wonderful, like practical examples of, you know, this is a data warehouse. This is how it probably, here's a few examples of how it's used, pros and cons that again, all this stuff we're discussing now for me is it's pretty much new. So I want to follow the journey, but already I'm starting to wobble on this journey. I'm like, yeah, three, 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 like we're six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <all the> time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's herald it back. And some of this definitely predates me, but you know, working with the government, fortunately, unfortunately, I have 
different projects where I've got to work on really old tech. So I've seen some of this <laughs> firsthand, <laughs> even though it technically really does predate me. So if we think of like on-prem, like EDWs or something like that, like you just think of the servers themselves, right? The, the core of the computer piece is sitting literally in a room with a bunch of wires connected. And that's how we sort of did our enterprise level of applications, you know, built them all there, installed the software there. And historically, you used to have to have a whole bunch of DBAs and network architects and everyone there to support that bottom level of the stack. Right? DBAs? Uh, sorry, database administrators. And and I will tell you, working in some of those old technologies or on-prem technologies, the DBAs, the database administrators, they knew where every skeleton was. Right? If, if I ever ran into an issue and I couldn't trace it back to a root cause, I run downstairs to the guys that are sitting outside of like the room they're plugged in, or sometimes they're in the room itself. And I'll be like, hey, I'm seeing this is weird in the data. I don't understand. Or something's broken in this process. Help me drive it. Like, oh yeah, we used to do this and it caused this issue. We call that technical debt, right? The longer you have something around, the more patchwork you got around it. And debt is such a great terminology for that because the longer you take to fix it, the more you pay when you actually have to fix it, right? It accrues on itself. So technical debt is a, is a great analogy and there's a lot of it all over the place. Our national defense infrastructure is probably one of the worst for that area. And for a lot of reasons, right? You build a mission-specific system. The ability to move that into a technology that it wasn't hyperly designed for is very difficult. But you can see that it's not just tech in terms of data and servers. It's also tech in terms of platforms. How many old platforms, I'm using this in the terms of defense, right? And huh. how many old military platforms have we revamped over and over again from the Cold War that we still use today? throw new US sensors on them, throw, you know, the ability to manage it inside your operating picture and all all that communications equipment on top of it. But you're still running the same platform that has been running for the Cold War. But we don't, well, you, know, you could argue whether or not we fight in a Cold War mentality today or not, but that it's not just what I'd call like a, a data tech that we tend to think of tech today. It's a full technology platform question in terms of how do you upgrade. So I'm... Um, getting out of tangent. So you used to have those and then call it, you came out with the cloud and the cloud was this answer to, hey, you don't have to run all of this yourself or you do actually have to run some of it yourself, but it's run in a singular place where we can put a whole bunch of servers and we can get value in terms of everyone kind of shares the same infrastructure, right? Uh -huh. So that move came and there's a lot of promise of scale, but a lot of what we did in the original, you know, first sort of generations of cloud, we just ported over things that we did on-prem. So they weren't really designed to take the scale of the cloud in account. That's why we use a term cloud native. And it really has to do with okay. did you design your architecture, your underlying, you know, ultimate build for how the cloud scales? Because if you don't, it doesn't really scale that well in reality. If you take something old, put it into something new. You're just running something old on something new, but you're still getting the old stuff. So you're saying that you, the old way of doing it was essentially you're accessing the old stuff remotely, basically. That's the difference, right? So it's all, you've picked all the servers, you've put them somewhere else, and you're accessing it via a secure connection, the internet or whatever, but you haven't, yeah, you haven't ripped up 
the rule book and, and rebuilt it with the awareness of all the challenges that are about to come with scaling it. Exactly. And, you know, you could take that to an extreme, which I've seen these projects happen. And, you know, you, you'll hear it called things like lift and shift, or there's a couple of terms for it. But I've seen literally transformation, quote unquote, efforts where they move the servers out of the room in the office, drove them over to, you know, some server farm somewhere else, put it into a secure, basically like set of buildings, networked it up, lit up some fiber. And now they just remote into their servers versus not into them, right? And that's now cloud. There's an incredibly wide definition in terms of what we consider cloud. But when we talk about public cloud, we're really talking about like an AWS, an Azure, Google, you know, Oracle, all of those sort of hyperscalers is I think the term probably better used for the modern cloud versus just remoting into a set of servers. Mm -hmm. There's a significant number of technology changes that occurred as well in terms of now that you're you know in the cloud and i guess you could do this also on prem to some extent but now that you have this scale we had this like a concept of full stack development and i'm going to bring this back to data but you have these enterprises now all of a sudden are you know the agile methodology devops and you know government dev secops including security into that whole process really giving the idea of, oh, we could build our own applications. We could transform much quicker. The idea of continuously pushing changes to an application or project actually fully changes how a project works, right? It's no longer a beginning and end date. This, oh, this concept of the application continuously lives, continuously grows, continuously gets enhanced. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things it caused was data silos. And for no, like, call it negative reason. It was just sort of the game theory and decisions of how you would build something. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to build this application, I want the most performant technology that fits what I'm trying to achieve. So you might choose a database that's different from the next application, that's different from the next application. And then next thing you know, all your data is now sitting in these singular pods that cannot connect with each other and that weren't even designed to connect with each other in a lot of cases. So that's where sort of you see this, they came in with this evolution of a lake house or a data lake where you just throw everything in it. But then they ran into the issue of, well, just because you threw everything into one place doesn't necessarily mean you can connect it. And then the next evolution, which is where sort of Snowflake is, and, and I'm skipping years, right, is now all of a sudden you have a singular platform and the database is abstracted so that it actually meets all these different use cases. So now you don't have to choose a specific technology. You can just go to one platform, covers it all. And this is, in a lot of cases, the movement of software as a service, SaaS, is that the SaaS platforms are really able to take a singular capability that's needed inside an enterprise and put it all into one place, whether that's business processes all in one place or your customer relationship management, all in one singular place. And then you're not building 10 different apps to manage your customers. You're doing one and it's all correlated in one place. So similarly for us, data is now in one place. Okay, right. So let, let's, let me just recap to make sure I'm following along. So with the data lake concept, let's take this scenario where I've built myself a sim simulation platform that generates data and I'm very proud of it and it's being used. And then Colin does the same thing different use case, but still simulation platform generates data. And then someone's gone, hang on a minute, we're getting lots of data. Let's let's put it all together. 
but of course i haven't designed it in any way to work with collins and vice versa there's no unification or um, standardization and they've just gone let's put it in there and look we've we've got all the data look it's all in one place isn't that great let's start doing insights and then it's spaghetti junction i guess um and and almost impossible to to unpick it so then moving on to the next evolution which we're you know, saying it's snowflake platform so would i as I'm building my simulation platform, would I then have to engage with you guys to go, okay, I'm, I'm going to generate data. What's the standards I should be using? And, and you know, what the fields should I, how should I name my fields? Is that something that you dictate or how does that work? So no, the governance piece is certainly a discipline. And when, especially when it comes to the public sector or federal governments is something that they need to coordinate. The platform itself is more of like a Swiss army knife of everything you might want to do with data, including how to govern the data and gives you the tools to it. But I'm very clear with our clients too. Governance is an organizational discipline that needs to be done and needs to be thought through. We can give you all the tools, but if your organization doesn't do that and doesn't do it in a disciplined manner, nothing's going to fix you. It's not a technology fix. I think it might be worth just dipping into a couple more terms of so this term of unstructured and structured data. So the primary categories would be structured data, semi-structured, unstructured. Structured is the typical thing you think in an Excel file, columns, rows. Semi-structured would be more like a JSON file where you have categories and it's grouped and it's tiered, but still has a level of structures. That's why they call it semi-structured. And then unstructured is basically Anything else that isn't fall into those two categories, that's photos, documents, video, all those sort of things, right, are unstructured data. Even to some extent, the text that comes out of X or Twitter or social media, I would consider them unstructured, but they obviously can get pulled into a structured format, but the text itself is unstructured, right? That is very interesting, and we cover all of it. So your traditional database, you wouldn't have that ability. You typically only get structured, or some of them can deal semi-structured. We cover all three. Tom and I come from a simulation background, so maybe it's a helpful analogy. It's a bit like I've made a simulator that outputs after after review, but it does it in video, and Tom's does it with positional data and in a structured manner. Now we're both correct, but we can never talk to each other. But interestingly, you know, going back to your Swiss Army knife, part of the platform is actually having solutions to try and bridge that gap, I guess. Is that fair? Yes. I think it's incredibly adaptive, but then there's a network effect that occurs. So we haven't talked about security. We haven't talked about that stuff, but we have essentially a huge marketplace. And I think that's where you start seeing more norms coming out, right? So if you take simulation platforms, it takes typically like some sort of external body committee to come together and say, here's simulation norms. We're going to standardize this so that our simulation platforms can all work together, right? And they have that governance body and then people conform to it. But the driver for people to conform really is the market pressure. As more people do that, as more of your input data sets are conformed to a specific format, you are going to start moving your technology in that direction unless there is a very significant reason not to. So with a marketplace, with the network effect that Snowflake actually brings to the entire data world globally, helps drive a lot of those things. It's definitely a mindset change. So I, for my sins, used to work on SAP ERP. And um, back in the day, it's changed now, but back in the day, that's very much a good example of a really monolithic piece of software. You've got to talk SAP 
ABAP or you ain't, yes. you ain't doing nothing. Now, gradually, the holes started to appear in the dam where it's like, oh, yeah, well, we'll export to Excel and we'll export to MISA projects and stuff and we'll interoperate to a degree. But the, the core truth was always in the big monolithic software. But now I think attitudes are, as you say, market pressures. Are, you have to be a better collaborator, I guess. Otherwise, people aren't going to get sucked into you. Yeah. Actually, I'd love to talk about simulation since both of you have sort of simulation platforms because this kind of goes back to the root problem that a lot of the data is not able to be brought together, right? You have an Excel file and you don't have a singular ID and it's different from another Excel file. You can't bring those two pieces of data together. But the value of data is in that horizontal. I mean, there's a vertical value of like tons of data, big data analytics, right? But there's also a value in the horizontal data in terms of how many data sets can we actually tie together, it gives us dimensionality in how we do our analytics. But that breaks down at a certain point. At a certain point, some data sets just don't connect. And what I've been seeing is a number of geospatial companies have been able to do these aggregated connections. Let's take it to H3 and then let's aggregate and then connect it using geospatial, the aggregation of geospatial and connect data on those. So it's like a, a pseudo join that occurs. But in my mind, simulation is so fascinating because one, you can actually bring in things that don't even join like that. Like your, your ability to join so many different data sets in a simulation just completely expands even beyond what geospatial can do. And then number two is that we as humans will recognize patterns that much faster in a simulation when we combine those data sets. That's something that I see significant, a significant value for simulation downstream. Yeah, we risk, risk dashing down a, a rabbit hole. Uh, we might have to come back to this one, but because um, we're not going to get through our sort of the questions we have. Just stepping back a bit and being a bit philosophical, how should we see data? Now, I've used the analogy of data should be seen like a resource, like iron ore. You know, we have to dig it out of the ground, we have to process, we have to clean it, and then it's useful. If you've got a similar view, or what, how do you see data? And, and sorry, and I'll just add on to that from Colin's point is, let's say you're speaking to a major lieutenant colonel, whoever, senior NCO that's been posted into a position, maybe coming from an infantry background who who now has to care about data. So that's, that's how do you see data? And also why should defense military personnel care about it? What's the kind of tangible benefits to them? Okay, that's great context. So the analogy I would give, iron's a pretty interesting analogy. The one you hear most common is oil, right? Uh, man, it's a resource, resource, you burn it, so on and so forth. But I would actually use water as an analogy. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that, because it, it can go into a couple of depths of why and how you manage data. But the first is, is that it underlies everything in life. Water is life in a lot of ways. And it's a renewable resource. So it has this sort of life cycle that it goes through. And similarly, data has this life cycle that it goes through. And it is renewable and it can be used over and over again, unlike oil, right? Which is once you burn it, you're done. But Tom, to your point specifically with how would a, I'll call them data stewards because they have this data and they're responsible for it. Mm -hmm. How would they approach data? Water, I think, is a great analogy because the data steward needs to approach it in a very balanced management standpoint that drives the, that basically makes the ecosystem that lives on that water thrive. So if you're a data steward for water, and let's just think actually, you know, like 
there are government employees who literally are responsible for waterways and the quality of our water and things like that. You can't just say, hey, I have this huge lake water reserve. It's super important that it is incredibly clean, so therefore no one can touch it. Because water is a resource. We all need access to that water. We need waterways to be able to do shipping, but we also need drinking water. That steward of that resource has to take into account the balance. The water does have to stay clean. So there are upstream disciplines that have to be required so people don't just dump stuff into the waterways, right? But at the same time, they have to allow ships or boating because they need commerce and they have to allow you know, fauna and flora to grow around it because that's part of the ecosystem and life cycle of it. And everything depends on that. Our crops depend on the water. Our ecosystem depends on the water. The wildlife depends on the water. We depend on the water to eat and drink. And balancing all of those stakeholders is a great analogy for what a data steward today has to do with its data. I would say that we tend to default in terms of we as data stewards. If we own a data a piece of data, the default is protect it, don't let anyone touch it unless absolutely necessary. It's here for one use only. But I think that's the incorrect way to work with that. Right? We have to be looking for opportunities and then weighing the opportunities and the risks against each other. Yeah, and I think that's a much better way of looking at it. Um, I mean, all analogies have limitations, but the water, the resource supports a number of different activities. And you have to deal with the fact that just because a duck swims in your reservoir and poops in it doesn't stop you drinking it. You might have to do something to it, but you, know, you can, <laughs> no. you know, I mean, all water's gone through you know, people many times, isn't it? Well, and I'd also say that it's it drives toward how you would measure yourself as well. We measure ourselves, especially data stewards, measure ourselves in terms of, was there a leak? Did I lose control over the data? Or is the data actually powering that singular mission that I'm looking at? But if we think of it as water, we actually measure ourselves in a very more a holistic manner. Is the ecosystem thriving? Is it healthy? And if it is, then I'm doing the right things. And if it's not, how do I manage to that whole of ecosystem being strong and resilient? Yeah, a really strong point. So keeping on with the theme, as the ecosystem is really fascinating to pull this thread, we're finding more, as we know where to get water, it's not just falling to the sky, but the data is is in lots of places, just extracting it, refining it, whatever we need to do. But what's your, you know, working with large data sets, so we've always heard the term big data, but what's your experience of what things do you need to get right when working with large data? Because I think we've all done it on a small scale, right? We've done, got a bit of data, done a chart, done some analysis insights, but when you get to big scale stuff, what, what's, what changes? I would say that the resource needs for big data are usually very surprising for people who haven't actually worked with big data before. If you take like OpenAI and take any one of their original algorithms that they developed and you break down what it cost them to actually train that AI originally, you'd be confounded. And so take a defense customer comes in and says, oh, I've got all this data. I'm going to train my drone to do XYZ and it's going to be super complicated. Um, accounting for the cost of training is something that I'm not sure that we do very accurately or well. Mm -hmm. And also understanding that there is actually a performance outcome difference if you budget a million dollars to training or if you budget $10 million to training. So that's one thing that I think is out there. There is value, obviously, in some of the open models that you could start from. And we're seeing a lot of that in the Gen AI, the LLMs, you know, BERT, obviously, ChatGPT, those types of things. The other thing, though, that I would say with big data is 
the understanding of how much of the data actually has to be clean. Maybe the other way I'd put it is data will never be perfectly clean. Can you, what do you define as clean? What's clean water to you? Sure, sure. So I'm sure everyone's run into it. You get an Excel file, it gets downloaded from some system. And instead of zeros, there's blanks. And so Mm -hmm. you try to run, even in Excel, you try to run a formula. And then all of a sudden your formula breaks and you're like, why? And you have to go through row by row. And you're like, oh, this is a blank, not a zero. And something so like the Mm -hmm. cleanliness of your data, right? And we talk about transformations or bringing data together. Or let's say you pull from multiple systems and one system has first name, last name, and the other system has last name, first name. And you queue them all together and you're like, oh. That didn't work, right? Or, or the American date system. Yeah. You know, it's done. <laughs> or, you know, metric and... and you, mean, you mean US gallons and British imperial gallons. So different. Yes. <laughs> and not always apparent. Yes. You know, as Americans, it's it's weird to think both in inches and centimeters, right? <laughs> and in the military too, right? right you're, yeah. thinking, you're thinking clicks, but then you're like, I'll say this to my kids. Oh, it's like, it's about two clicks away. And you're like, what? Yeah, and then you get people like me who, if you're in the Navy, you think of uh, nautical miles. Nautical so. miles. <laughs> so there's there's a level of cleanliness that if you're working with a really small data set, you know you need it, right? Because you need every single row. But if you work at really big data sets, especially with real world data, there's sort of these statistical correlations of how clean does it need to be? Can you uh, replace missing data? Because there's almost always missing data. Can you replace it with an algorithm or a distribution that, you know, at least gets you in general. And and if you think of also in terms of like data privacy, that's like the differential data privacy type stuff banks on the fact that you need, you have large enough data sets, right? To be able to inject randomness into it. So yeah, I would say like that is also one of those questions of for each data set, you need to find that balance of how clean is the data to, is it usable? Mm-hmm. You'll never get to perfectly clean. I think that's one of the things that isn't apparent to normal people who haven't dealt with these. It's like, well, data's data, isn't it? I mean, just make it work. Do the thing. Yeah, the assumption of sensors being perfect, I think, probably underlies a lot of that. But even if you look at, take like media and entertainment, and they do motion capture, everyone's seen like the Mm -hmm. dots on the guy's face, and they do that. If you talk to a motion capture engineer or anything like that, and get into the fact of like, how much manual work behind the scenes you do to clean up that data so that you can then put it into a computer and actually do your motion capture. I think people in general would be very surprised that like it's not clean when it comes out. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is definitely that kind of world that people would rather be like, they, they will almost intentionally be ignorant of the facts because this just sounds like a whole new world of headaches that you're describing to me that, yeah, that people prefer to ignore and and then to shout at someone for why it's not working or why it's not accurate but actually it's so important to understand the challenges especially for senior procurement experts senior military personnel whoever they might be just understand their data is becoming more and more important to everything we do within defense and, and will only become more important so understanding the challenges and the constraints of it can only allow you to be better procurement expert or commander or whatever that might be going forward. So I'm really, I'm enjoying this. It's heavy going. And again, I know you've been keeping this really light as well. So, so I, and I appreciate that, but I feel like I am actually learning something. So thank you. Uh, thank you for that so far. <laughs> well, let's push on. Yeah. So, I mean, that there's the, some interesting stuff there and I guess getting things like any architecture, right? Yeah. Uh, 
the data architecture, I think, is pretty key to getting it right. The governance, obviously, we talked about before, is, is very key to being able to connect those data sets. Maybe uh, one of the things that I think conceptually I like to talk about or I try to lead folks into, and it actually comes back to the water analogy, is data mesh. You, you guys have heard the term data fabric. You've probably heard those terms thrown around. Not no. Okay. In our world, with the data world, these are the big buzzwords. And you know how governments love their buzzwords and how they take a life of their own and may or may not actually mean what they're supposed to mean. So we've got these big buzzwords going on, but essentially they're an architecture of how do you connect data. And uh, you can think of a simple military exercise and a data mesh would be how does your scope sensor connect to you know your radio and, and to the cop and to the larger command um, that's watching that into the drone, to the satellite, right? Like all mm. those data connections essentially create an architecture. The question is, is do you create a mesh? And, and again, these terms start overlapping the more they're used and the more they become very, uh, I guess, colloquialized. But one of the things that I talk about is there's probably a good reason to allow for these things to occur organically. At a certain point, I think the system gets so complex that to top down this is actually going to cause more issues. In a lot of cases, I would say it's a form of hubris for someone to come in and say, you've got 10 million sensors. I am going to design for you how exactly all of them are going to connect in the most optimal way possible. So the, the, the centralized planning doesn't work anymore. Is that what you're saying? I, I mean, look at it in, in terms of human elements and leadership. There's a core leadership principle in the military, which is you push the decision-making down to the lowest possible level and that you train them and trust them to make those decisions. Now, as our dashboards have gotten better, as our data has gotten better, as our systems have started coming together as the presentations and PowerPoint, we don't necessarily practice that all the time in our militaries. In fact, if anything, and this is just as true for a lot of commercial sector as well, right? You're starting to see the generals or the CFO or the CEO in the company is now the one who's a central decision maker because we have all this data rolling up and they feel like they can control it better and they want that command and control. However, principally from a leadership standpoint and from just a human standpoint, we know that that is not the best way to do things. And especially in military operations, we've had historical proof time and time again that you need to be able to push that decision down to the individual operator and let them make those decisions. And a great example of that, of course, is the war in Ukraine. Clearly, the commentators say that the way that the Ukrainians defended their land, their country, was very decentralized, you know, and they mm -hmm. were they were making the right decisions to defend their country as you know in real time, whereas obviously the, the Russian military they're very doctrinal, very commander led, and may, men they couldn't respond quickly or efficiently or effectively to the realities on the ground. Yeah, I think that model one is going to have to be considered in AI models as well as we integrate AI into things. That is a much longer discussion. In terms of data architectures, I tend to think of organic growth. So if we go back to the water analogy and we think of, you know, for in the US it'd be like fifth grade for me, but you know, essentially grade school. And do you remember those like ecosystem diagrams? The fox eats the the hen, yep. which eats the grub, right? Which grows on and it's just like the life cycle. And it's, yep. you see all the networked lines drawing the relationships between all these different, we'll call them stakeholders, but you know animals 
in, for the fifth graders. You said to bring it down a level, right, Tom? Yeah, no, this is perfect. <laughs> Damn. Tom, uh, I'm reading Tom. all these books at the moment to my kids, <laughs> yeah. mate. I'm there. So if you think of those, those occur naturally. And that's one of the things that I talk to a lot of our customers with, with Snowflake is like, look, you can on Snowflake connect a data set with two clicks. It's all it takes. It's super hyper fast and efficient. You can wrap security around it so you don't have to worry. But it's two things. The ease at which you can connect, make that connection, that line, and the de-risking that you have around because of all the security that you can put in place, you are no longer worried about the risks. So the individual actor now can very much focus on how they want to collaborate, how their data stewardship really drives forward a mission and worry less about the risk that comes with it. And if you're able to do that, then you're managing the whole ecosystem and you're driving that organic collaboration to occur. We see it in a macro scale. Like when we watch how much data sharing occurs across the entire globe and we just see this like logarithmic increase in data sharing. And I think from a game theory perspective, from an organic growth perspective, that is how you really should approach it internally for a entity as well. Like for the army would do the same thing in terms of how it can set that up. It's fascinating. There's lots of deep subjects here. <laughs> we have to sort of, uh, yeah, it's easy to dive down any of these, but if I were to be a, a large government organization and you know, I almost see it as like a make versus buy. And we've seen this in simulation where COTS technologies are sort of, oh, right, great. I can take the game engine or I can take yeah, something that was a game and make it into a military tool. But in, in the data field, is that the same thing happening? And what's the business case for you know, building my solution on a platform versus building it from the ground up? So I actually think that we are moving towards the direction of platform stacks because platforms do a couple of things. They reduce the management costs on the bottom side of the stacks because you just don't have to manage them. They're all managed at scale by the you know external provider. And then they make things very easy to create. So your speed to production is that much faster. So while you certainly could go out and build that exactly yourself, you are now managing top to bottom and you have a much larger life cycle in terms of building from the ground up, whereas you're building from a framework that already exists. As long as that framework can cover your use cases, then you're fine. The interesting thing that I think I'm seeing is that customers are now, and I don't think necessarily realizing they're doing this, but the incentives for them to buy a platform make a lot of sense and they're buying them. And then they are, in some cases by accident, realizing that they're stacking them all up. And so where we talked about full stack development, what database do I use? What engine do I use? What middleware do I use? So on and so forth. Now we're seeing enterprises, especially just going with a stack of platforms. And as long as that stack can cover 80, 90% of Pareto of their use cases, it's a huge value, both in speed to production and in uh, cost reduction. And then we've talked about the sort of the exponential increase in collaboration and, and how you don't necessarily have to have the perfect data. This is old idea that it's got to all be perfectly clean, but are there other benefits to it in terms of what we see, not just collaboration, but maybe things like resilience and things? I think so. If you think of the way the intelligence community verifies a tip or a lead or an, a piece of intelligence, it can't just come from one source. And as our sensor arrays grow, as the satellite network grows, as the types of data that we collect become so abundant we're going to not be able to build something off of one data set anymore. 
we're going to want that accountability, that verification. And this network effect is the only thing that will really make that possible. Yeah, so we need a convergence or triangulation of the answer, not just that thing says go, that's it. And also different angles, right? Like you can take the same data, data set and transform it and two different analysts can look at that same data set and approach it from two completely different approaches. And then their sort of secondary output of those data sets, right? The transformations, the enrichment that they provide has those different angles sort of baked into it. And so now you can combine even what is originally the same core source data from different angles and different approaches. I mean, I mean, this whole chat has been really, even for me, I've been dealing with some of this and it's still enlightening. So thank you. But, uh, you know, one of the challenges that remain, I mean, I, I sense that if we're learning things, not that we're particularly highbrow at all, but, you know, there seems to be a general lack of understanding of these new concepts. And is this one of the challenges in terms of changing the culture for what people understand? And So I would just say that upskilling, data literacy, investing in your people is one of the most overlooked and easiest mm-hmm. ways to change things. But no one budgets for it. That's the saddest thing, is that no one budgets for it. And it's so easy and it's actually incredibly low cost. But I'll give you the analogy, which is 20 years ago, we all used to put proficient in Microsoft Word or Excel on our things. No one does that today because everyone is, and it's expected of you. I think the same thing too. We get these data literacy, data training badges today. It should be to the point where no one thinks that, that the, that the secretary, frankly, has high data literacy, mm-hmm. right? To read dashboards and be that much more powerful at work. So I'll leave it there. No, I'd, I'd just add, you know, if you don't know what it can do, how can you ask it of the system or the, the people? And that's exactly, if you don't know you can do this, you don't even start on that journey. Well, thank you, Winston. I think that was more than enough. And I had to hold back from many, many, many. I could, I could tell. Could have <laughs> I can tell you're doing that, Colin. Well done. <laughs> well, well, well. Well. <laughs> yeah, say, but Winston and I will have a beer over this, I'm sure, in the near future. So. I look forward to that. Definitely. So thank you, Colin. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. What can I say? Despite having looked at this stuff and yeah, at least had a little bit of understanding, I for the first time meant I was, I was taking loads of notes. So, <laughs> you know, the one thing that stands out, and it's, yeah, analogies are useful, but not always that helpful. But the analogy of the water and the ecosystem, when you start to think about it, go, oh, that's how we should manage data. That's how she curate it. I thought that was a really interesting take. I, yeah, I did think it was interesting. I, I being a skeptical individual, like it, it's like that's that's the way it should be. But actually, you know, it's unlikely to get to that level. So, what's the what's the muddy water we can get to, as opposed to the clean water? Like, you know, what are the steps, or what are the steps to get to that the cleanest water, the best ocean? Because I just it requires such a holistic understanding of data at every level, which, you know, again, we discussed and I think from what we know now and from what Winston said, it should become fundamental to the education of our troops and, and people within the MODs, procurement, et cetera. But it's not quite that we're a long way off that now. Um, so, it's, yeah, what are your thoughts, Colin, on how we get there? That's another episode. Thought the interesting point is like the muddy water or the swamp is still useful. Now, you don't want to drink from the swamp, but it has its purpose. And, yeah. and that was interesting take as opposed to everything must be 100% clarified, crystal pure, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think we have a huge challenge in just one awareness and, and education like anything else really, but you can't just be an observer. You've got to get stuck in and understand this and get your hands dirty with some of it. So yeah, I think we've got a long way to go, which was kind of 
the, the reason to speak to people like this is they've been on that journey. Yeah, and I suppose just coming from that, you say that kind of you know, military background, knowing how understandably in lots of ways the average junior officer, soldier, whatever, rails against having to do their data protection courses, etc. It's going to be a tough uphill battle to sell the importance of it. Having said that, it is important, so it needs to be addressed. But anyway, if you've got this far, you know, I'm sure and I'm confident you've got those nuggets of wisdom, which is the whole point of what we're trying to achieve with the Warfighter podcast. I hope you've enjoyed that and can take away these things. Please feel free to follow us on, on LinkedIn, which obviously is the Warfighter podcast. Just search for that and, and follow and you subscribe to the newsletter there. And if you want to send an email to us, it's contact at warfighterpodcast.com. Colin, any final thoughts? Well, just the schedule for season two shaping up rather nicely. Lots of really interesting things. But if anyone has any ideas or things we're missing out on, please do send a note to the, either the, the website or, or through LinkedIn. See you next time. <laughs>